0: Uh, if you're here with us again for the first time, thank you. I uh, can't thank you enough. I know there's lots of churches around, good churches. God's doing a lot of great things in the city, but we're grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, considered a privilege. And so uh, we have been preaching, uh, reading and preaching through a series called The Way of Paradox, uh, following the right side up king in an upside down world. Basically what I've done over the past, I think this is week seven, um, is uh, look at different encounters that Jesus had with people. And how the encounters are are not always what we expected, that his ways are completely different than the ways of the world, and he's a completely different kind of king. And so today, if you you brought your Bible with you, we're actually going to be in Mark chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the, the passage up on the screen. And we do also have some Bibles available for your taking out on our Next Steps table right outside the doors there. So if, you, if you'd like a, a Bible from the version that I preach and read from, which is the English Standard Version, please just grab one of those and, and take it on your way out uh, as our gift to you today. Um, so last week we were in Mark chapter 7. We've, we've done a little bit of, of skipping here. We've gone to a, a new encounter with Jesus. But uh, two, two significant things have happened between chapter 7 and chapter 10 that I need to make mention of before we proceed. And the, the first is this, that the beginning of Mark's gospel up through chapter 7 has been primarily to show who Jesus is. In other words, every encounter, every miracle that we've seen and that are, that are recorded in Mark's gospel up to that point was to show that Jesus was the promised king, that he was the redeemer, that he was the Messiah of the Jewish people. And so that's primarily what my, Mark was trying to do in those opening uh, recorded events. But uh, now we've made this transition in uh, chapter 7 through 10, where we're at now, that Jesus isn't just showing us who he is, namely the redeemer, but uh, how he will redeem his people. And so he begins to make these allusions to suffering. And he begins to make these allusions to death and resurrection. And it's completely confounding the disciples. They have no idea what he's talking about because this is not the kind of king that they expected. The second thing that's happened between our last passage and today is actually the event that happened right before the encounter that we're going to look at today. And so if you're in in your Bible, you can just look at the header and it's the let the the children come to me passage. This is that passage where the disciples were annoyed by all the kids that were around, right? And Jesus said that the kingdom belongs to such as these, namely children, children, and so like this, this idea that the, the religious rabbis of the day were being confounded by children showed this upside down nature of the kingdom. And so what we'll see in this next section of Mark's gospel in our, in our, in our encounters with him through his word is that Jesus' kingdom is completely upside down. It's completely unorthodox. It's completely against everything that this world tells us it should be. And so, with that said, let's look at Mark chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 17, and I'll go down through verse 31. So, this is the word of the Lord for us today. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him this is Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first this is the word of the lord let's ask him for our, for his help Father in heaven, that last song is is ringing in our hearts and in our ears still, Lord, oh, how we need you. Lord, that is the great cry of our hearts, and it's the great cry of my heart right now, Lord, how we need you. What a difficult teaching this is from Jesus, Lord. I pray now that you would help us to have understanding, that you would show us from your word and by your spirit what it means to enter the kingdom of God and how it is that we can know that we're in the kingdom of God. Lord, would the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. We pray these things in in Jesus' name. Amen. There are few things that ruffle our feathers as Americans than talking about money. Uh, One of the other things is talking about politics and talking about religion. And so I'll avoid politics, but I'll talk about religion and money today. Um, but Jesus encounters us today, and he encounters this rich, young ruler uh, today, and he brings up this sensitive subject of, of money. I stumbled a- across a-, a website, as I um, often do, you know, any good preacher worth his salt and weight um, always starts at Google to, you know, you've got to find something through Google. And so I-, I began Googling some things about wealth and Americans' wealth, and, and I-, I came across this website. Uh, it's called uh, globalrichless.com. No need to bookmark it. I'll, I'll summarize it for you. Globalrichlist.com. Here's, here's the, the gist of it. You enter how much money you make annually, and it tells you where you rank in your wealth according to the world. Like Somehow they figured this out. So I uh, took the average uh, American household income, which apparently is $50,000 according to another website. So about $50,000, and you plug that into this website, and it tells you how rich... You are So if your income, and it may be lower, but you'll get the point because you're still pretty wealthy. If your income as a household is $50,000 a year, you are of the 0.3% richest person in the world. 0.3% in the world. And it, it gave you the rank, you're like the hundred and fifty seventh richest person, whatever it is. Um, but the point is this, that we are wealthy, that we are, we are rich people. And so a passage like this is extremely concerning to us, and it was extremely concerning to this man. And so some, one of the questions that I kind of want to pose up front for us to, to, to ask ourselves of this text is is why, is why is wealth and money such a barrier to entering God's kingdom? And what we'll see in today's passage is that money and morality, he's going to talk about a little bit about our morality, They provide things that we need as people. They provide things like security. They provide things like confidence and assurance. They provide things like status that can be measured, a scorecard, if you will. And so these are things that as humanity, God has wired us to want and to need. And money uniquely provides that for us. But these are all things that we need that we are supposed to get from God and not from our morality or from our money. And so here's the main thing that I want us to see as we, as we look at this passage today, and it's this, that, that entrance into God's kingdom requires everything from us, but it requires nothing less than that. So entering God's kingdom requires nothing less than everything, okay? That sounds kind of daunting, Adam. Well, here's the good news that's hidden in this passage. It's this, that the only way we can get, give everything to gain God is, is if we know that God gave everything to gain us and so what we'll see in this passage is the good news for us is hidden in not looking at this one true this one young rich ruler but it's actually looking at the true and better young rich ruler Jesus in this passage and so here's here's how I want to approach the passage I want to ask three questions of the text and so here here's the the one one of the questions I want to ask I want to ask what keeps us out of the kingdom it's the first question. The second question I want to ask is, what gets us into the kingdom? And then the last question I want to ask is, how can we know if we are in the kingdom? So we'll, we'll take these in order. The first one is, what keeps us out of the kingdom? Um, I mentioned that there is this new movement in Mark's gospel, that it's taken a new tone and a new flavor, and part of that has to do with the context. Verse 17 tells us that, that Jesus headed out on his journey. Now, the the way the word journey is used in Mark's gospel, and he's going to use it throughout it, is he's headed to a a, a direction, namely a place. He's headed to Jerusalem, that his journey is to go to Jerusalem to die and to suffer as the crucified Messiah. And so everything in the gospel is moving us towards this new way of paradox, the way of suffering. And so Jesus begins by, on his way towards Jerusalem, he's going to the epicenter of where God will redeem his people through the work of Jesus, and he encounters this man. The man in Mark's gospel is just identified as a man. In Luke's gospel, he's actually identified as a a ruler. And so this man had some sort of authority from from wherever he was from. We're not given a name. We're not given any details of who exactly this man was historically. But this was a real man. This is not a parable. This is not a fictitious story that's made up to teach us a, a spiritual lesson. This was real. And so here Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. And this rich, young ruler kneels before him and he asks him, the million-dollar question, the, the $64,000 question, as they say, and it is this. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get into your kingdom is this man's concern? Now, inherent to the, to the problem is actually right in the middle of that question, and it's the word do. Now, Jesus is... He's, spiritually keen, right? I mean, this is the son of God in the flesh. So he, he kind of he sees through this man's question and asking what it is he must do. Now, what we know about Jesus is he, he knew this man already. In fact, the Bible tells us that he made this man. And so he knows this man's heart and he knows the motive behind the question. And so Jesus begins to unravel it for him. So the answer to the question, what would have been expected from a Jew, we're assuming this man's a Jew because he's a law keeper. What would have been expected? The answer to that question was keep God's law. How do I get into heaven? Keep the law. And so what does Jesus do? He quotes five of the top 10 commandments and he adds one just just kind of for icing on the cake. He, he, he quotes the five, the, the five in the top ten are do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, and then honor your father and mother. But he adds the do not defraud. That's actually significant because that's showing us how Jesus knew this man's heart. Now, it would have been assumed that in this culture that a rich man like this would have had to defraud or somehow mistreated people to get to where he was right? There would have been some way where he had to scam somebody or use somebody in a way that was unhealthy to get his financial status. And Jesus knew that he actually didn't do that because the man's answer is true and right. He says, teacher, I've kept all these. Jesus, I am a law keeper. I am a rule-following, law-abiding Jewish man. I've done what I need to do. That was the expected answer that Jesus gave him. But but there's something missing because if this Jewish man would have known that keeping the law was enough, he never would have asked the question. And so there's something inside of this man that knew that law keeping was not enough to get into God's kingdom. And so Jesus gives us the unexpected answer following the law keeping. In verse 21, Jesus looked and he loved and he told him essentially, go sell everything that you have Give it to the poor, and then follow me. Notice the language. It says that Jesus looked and loved him in verse 21. The, the language used there is, is one of intensity. The, the looking is not just a normal observance, it's one of intensity. The loving there is not just one general word, it's actually the word agape. Some of you are familiar with that. Theme. It's this, this intense, God tenacious type of love that's only used here. In Mark's Gospel. So, Jesus looks at this man who wants to know how to get into heaven. He loves him, and then he tells him the hardest thing he's ever heard. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. You see, what Jesus is asking this man to do is to replace the idol that was on the throne of his heart, namely his money. He was crushing his idol. He was replacing it, and he was saying, get rid of that idol and put me on your throne, and then you'll have the kingdom. And it was the hardest lesson this man had ever heard. In fact, the way it tells us, he walked away sorrowful. We'll talk about that in a minute. So here's, here's how I want to ask a question of us today. Is, is Do you want to know if, if money is your savior? Like this man's money was his savior. He could not let it go. So how can we tell if money is our savior? Well, here's, here's, here's the question to ask. Are you able to give money away generously and frequently? Can you let money go out of your hands easily? If that's difficult, and if you're anything like me, you know that it is, money is probably your master. That is an inclination of our hearts, is that we grip our money so tightly because it grips our hearts so tightly. That money does something for us that only God is supposed to do, but boy, does money mask that so well you need money because money gives you something that you need namely security confidence and assurance that everything is going to be all right and god alone was intended to fill that maybe money's not your problem because jesus is actually just addressing this man and he's addressing us too as as a group but but essentially all of us have idols that we're inclined towards right? something that sits on the throne of our hearts that gives us what only God was supposed to give us. And so if you can give money away, money might not be your master, but something is. Something is your master, whether it be romantic relationships, whether it be your work, is a very easy idol to have, whether it be entertainment, whatever, whatever it is that sits on that throne of your heart that soothes you in the way that only God was intended to soothe you, That's your idol. And Jesus wants that to be him. So here's what he's saying. What keeps us out of the kingdom is he's giving us this hard teaching. Imagine your life without money. All of it. Gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? Can you live like that? This man's response in verse 22, he was disheartened and he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. Hold on to that word for for me. We're We're gonna close with that word, actually. This man went away sorrowful because he was unwilling to let go of his possessions in order to gain Jesus. That's what keeps us out of the kingdom. The second question is well, then what gets us into the kingdom? I just learned this probably a couple of years ago. My wife is a chocolate fanatic. We lo- like just just chocolate everywhere in our house, which is fantastic. But I learned a couple of years ago that I had no idea how to eat chocolate right. Um, if, if, if any of you have been to a meal with me, you may have noticed my eating habits are rather rapid. Um, I'm a quick eater. And I did the same thing with chocolate. I mean, you just get a nice piece of chocolate and I just chewed it up and it was gone and I really never enjoyed it. And, and one time, Heather noticed that I didn't know how to eat chocolate. And so she informed me, enlightened me to the ways of eating chocolate. Namely, you take it out, you observe it. It's beautiful, chocolate. <laughs> you, you put it in your mouth and you just let it sit there. And you just, you just suck on the chocolate. And this was a game changer for me. Like, I didn't realize for what, 30 years of my life, I had no idea how to eat chocolate. So if you've never eaten chocolate like that, I suggest that you just take your time to get to the goodness that is chocolate. <laughs> the connection is, that's actually how we're supposed to handle the hard teachings of Jesus. That they're not really meant to just be taken, chewed up, and, oh my gosh, I got to go sell everything. Like, Jesus just said, sell everything, give it to the poor, and what am I going to do? Well, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Well, let's, let's work through this hard teaching like a good piece of chocolate together, okay? Here's the illustration that Jesus gives us. Love it when Jesus teaches, right? He always gives us word pictures. He, he, he spoke to ordinary men and women so we could understand what he's trying to say. And in this teaching about how difficult it is to get into God's kingdom, he gives us a word picture, he says it is easier for a camel yes picture a full two humped camel a real camel to get through the eye of a needle yes those little needles if you thread through them you know those tiny you got to suck the string to get it through it's terrible i can't i don't even attempt to do that anymore he says it is easier for a real camel to get through the real eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of god now if that doesn't discourage you i don't know what will The teaching is very clear. Now, some scholars have attempted to to kind of water this down and said, well, there was actually this gate. It was called the needle's eye. And actually, travelers, if they brought their camel up to the gate and and if they kneeled down just right and if they squeezed through there, they, they could actually get a camel through there. And wow, that, that's a stretch. I think Jesus is pretty clear. And the reason that's not actually true is because that gate actually didn't exist until about 900 years after Jesus said this. So it's just kind of it's, it's just a moot point. Jesus is very clear what he's saying here. And it is this. It is impossible, impossible to enter God's kingdom through our own efforts. It's impossible. And so these men that are surrounding him his disciples ask the logical question well then Jesus who can get into the kingdom I mean it makes sense right if if camel can't get through the eye of a needle then what hope do I have and it's the great question because the answer is well nobody can nobody can get into this kingdom on their own effort and so Jesus here is not condemning wealth he's not condemning money he's not condemning work and and all of those things that are good What he's condemning is hearts that trust that money wealth work to give it what only he can give and until we're willing to let that go we will not be a part of god's kingdom money has this unique ability to blind us in trusting in it it just does it's a tangible thing in this world that god has given us to use as a tool that we often use in in inappropriate ways And so what we do with money and what we do with our entire spiritual life is we try to squeeze into God's kingdom. We try to beat this this teaching. We try to beat this hard teaching by saying, well, come on. It's got to be possible to get that camel through there. So what does squeezing into God's kingdom sound like in your life? Here's here's sometimes what it sounds like in my own life. And I have a, a hunch and a suspicion that it sounds like this in your life. It sounds like this. God, I'm trying my best. I'm doing the best I can with what you've given me. I'm keeping your rules. I'm being a good person. I'm trying my hardest. Is that enough for the kingdom? Or it sounds something like this, like, I'm not that bad, God. I'm not a serial killer. I haven't robbed a bank this week. I am not that bad. Uh, Surely a guy like me can get into your kingdom. I'm not that bad. Or here's even better, God, I... (laughs) I do give money, right? I give money fairly generously. I'm good at giving money. In fact, I've set it up regularly. It's down to the penny, so I know exactly how much I'm giving, and you know that too. God, surely you'll let someone in like me that's generous like me. Here's what Jesus is saying for us, is that the only possible way to get into the kingdom is to see it is impossible. Hear that. The only possible way for you to get into that kingdom is to know it's actually impossible on your own. And when you begin to get that, then you begin to know that entrance into the kingdom is a reality because why? Because Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. How many of you have heard that ripped out of its context before? Right? That's kind of the, the blank check, the free ticket to whatever we want. All things are possible with God. Well, no actually he's talking about salvation and coming into god's kingdom he makes the impossible possible so knowing the impossibility of entering into god's kingdom should make us want to give everything away not so that we can earn entrance into it but we so we we can rejoice that there was a way made to enter into it do you hear that distinction this man is being asked by Jesus to give everything away, not so he can earn his way into it, but so he can know that Jesus has provided a way for him to get into it. That's how you come into the kingdom of God. A willingness to give everything away is a sign that you get that Jesus has made this possible, not through your own effort. So what gets us into the kingdom? Knowing that it's impossible apart from God. Knowing it's impossible. Well, then the third question I want to ask of this passage is how can we know if we are in the kingdom? You know, a teaching like this can fall on our ears in ways that, that concern us, right? It, it's rigid. It's hard to hear. It's, it's heart-searching kind of stuff. And if we took this teaching, again, like a piece of hard candy and just started chewing on it, we'd leave away with an extremely terrible taste in our mouth. But the beauty of this passage is actually found in verse 28 in Peter's response. Peter began to say to him, in other words, you almost sense in the text the way it's described it, that Peter was hesitant in this, right? Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And so here is a great example in the scriptures of one of the disciples beginning to see the grand scheme of God's redemption in the kingdom. In other words, Peter is saying, well, we have really left everything everything they'd left their boats they had left their way of life to follow jesus and that's when they began to see that they were in the kingdom they left everything the the descriptors there described their homes their families their fields they left their security their relationships all of the things that provided them alliances and allegiances they were willing to let go in order to have jesus And so Peter's response is is that I'm willing to lose everything in order to have you Jesus. You see, when Jesus becomes so central to your life that life without him seems impossible, well, that's when you know you're in the kingdom. When Jesus becomes so precious to you that he is your treasure and losing that treasure cripples you and crushes you, That's when you know you're in the kingdom. Jesus wants our lives to be centered around him, not to be an addendum to our life, not an appendix to it. Like, oh, I'm a banker, I'm a father, and I'm also a Christian. Rather, I am a Christian who is a banker, who is a father. You see, that's everything that this man was unwilling to do and everything that Jesus was calling him to do make Jesus central to everything. He doesn't want our morality to be central to it. Does the way we live matter? Absolutely. Is God's law good for us? Absolutely. Should we follow it? Absolutely. He doesn't want money to be the center of our lives. Is money good? Yeah, money's great. Provides all kinds of good things. But he doesn't want money or our morality to be ultimate or central. He wants him to be ultimate and central listen if we look at a passage like this if we encounter a teaching of jesus like this and we simply see on the surface go give everything up sell to the poor and then follow me and we say well there's no way i can do that we walk away misunderstanding it because jesus really is teaching his disciples and us by extension that that's exactly right there is no way we can do that the main point of this passage is for us not to look and fix our eyes on that rich young ruler and to say well what did he do wrong and how should I be better the main point of this passage is for us to fix our eyes on the true rich young ruler Jesus you know how old Jesus was at the time of this he's probably about 31 he was young do you know what the Bible tells us about Jesus it tells us that he was rich he felt, it tells us that he was a ruler Colossians 1 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, that he made everything. He is the creator, whether they are thrones or dominions or powers or authorities, Jesus made them all for himself. And so that's the Jesus of the Bible, that he is the owner of everything. He's the rich ruler. And yet, what did he do? He willingly gave it all jesus became a man philippians 2 talks about how he did not consider equality with god a thing to be grasped but instead he took the form of a servant and he poured himself out he emptied himself he became like us second corinthians chapter 8 tells us that for our sake he became poor so that in him we might become rich see that's the gospel is that the young, rich ruler willingly gave everything away in order to get us, and now because he's done that, we too can give everything away to get him. That's the freedom of the gospel, not that we have to, but that we get to. Jesus became poor so we could become rich in ways that the world has no idea what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us about what we have in Christ. It describes us in this way in verse 13, I believe, verse 11, I believe. It says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? You have everything you'll ever need in Jesus. Everything. And so when you know that to be true and you live like that, money becomes nothing to you. It becomes a tool to be used, not something that keeps the scorecard of your life. Listen, I told you to hold on to a word and that word was sorrowful. This man walked away sorrowful after this teaching because he was unwilling to give it all for Jesus. That very same word is used in Mark chapter 14 to describe Jesus If you're familiar with with that context, in Mark chapter 14, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. This is on the night that Jesus was betrayed and Jesus is in this garden praying. He's praying and he tells his disciples that his heart is very sorrowful. And his heart is sorrowful because he's willing to give up everything in order to gain us. Everything. And the supreme um scandal of the cross is not the physical pain that he bore though it was bad the supreme scandal of what Jesus gave up and what he knows he's going to give up in the garden is all of the riches and the ruling that he had in the heavenly places namely he had this eternal relationship with God the father that had always been and it was about to be ruptured on the cross what the bible tells us about the cross is that Jesus on that Calvary's hill was suffering something that was so gruesome and so powerfully painful that it was God the Father turning his back on his son, leaving him, forsaking him. Jesus gave up everything so that we might be rich. Brothers and sisters, that's the best news in the world. There is no money that will give that to you. There is no retirement plan, there is no vehicle, there is no possession, there is no morality, there is no religion, there is no church attendance that can give you that. And that's what we rejoice in. The good news that Jesus, for our sake, became poor so that in Jesus we too might become rich. Would we rejoice in that today and in doing so be willing to give everything away? Let's pray. Father, Jesus never ceases to amaze. Lord, we cannot dig too deep into the riches of your grace found in the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray today that as we take a teaching like this to heart, that we would, we would assess everything that Jesus is telling us about your kingdom, about the difficulty of coming into it because of the way that, that the world, our money, our efforts can pollute that. And so, Lord, I pray that, that if there are any here today that, that maybe haven't even tasted of the freedom that's willing to give it all away for Jesus, that, that you might grant that to them. And for any that are here today that are, that are trusting in Christ, that we would be renewed uh, in the sense of awe of Jesus' willingness to become poor for us, that he gave everything to gain us. So, Lord, would you work that into our hearts? Would you change us because of it? Would it be worked out in the Monday through Saturday of our lives so that people would taste and see that you are a good and gracious God? And we pray all these things in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.